Yo, 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 what's up everybody? How's it going? Happy Thanksgiving to all of you and welcome you at all of our campuses. I hope and trust that you guys had a great time over the holidays with your friends and with your family. Uh, I know that Thanksgiving uh, brings a lot of good times for many of you. Uh, for some of you, it's because of Black Friday and you get to go shopping. Uh, for some of you, like Danny Franks, it means you can start playing Christmas music in your office already right now because you, you've waited all year to play Christmas music and now you feel like you're validated. You can actually do this without anybody giving you haterade, all right? Uh, for me, it's the food. I love the food at Thanksgiving. Y'all can have your turkey. Just give me a plate, literally a pan of Sister Schubert rolls, um, some sweet potatoes with marshmallows on top, and uh, cranberry sauce that's still in the shape of the can, and I'm, I'm good to go, all right? Y'all can have your homemade cranberry sauce and your homemade biscuits. Give me Sister Schubert rolls and cranberry in the shape of the can, and I'm ready to roll, all right? Uh, my name is Jason Gaston. I'm the student pastor here at the Summit, um, and what that means is I don't get an opportunity to stand up here a lot, and so when I do, that means I get to brag on what God is doing in the lives of teenagers here at the Summit for just a moment, so allow me, if you will. Uh, I want you to know, Summit Church, um, at all of our campuses, what God is doing in the lives of teenagers. Uh, here in Raleigh-Durham, we literally have seen our reach expanding. Uh, we're getting into more schools that we've never been able to get into and, and love on faculty and love on staff and, and to meet new students. And uh, literally, we're seeing God redeem students. We're seeing God use leaders. We're seeing God use other students to reach their friends that have never heard the gospel before and bring them into uh, a relationship with Christ. We've seen 30 plus students this past year alone come to faith in Christ. We've seen many more than that take the step of obedience to getting baptized. We've seen more students taking the opportunity to plant and begin to really love in their community by planting small groups. We're seeing students equipped with the gospel to take it to their schools, and we're also seeing them take it to the nations. God is using teenagers here in Raleigh-Durham, and he's using teenagers globally in your church. And you need to be incredibly thankful for what God is doing in the lives of your teenagers, all right? That's right. One of the things, one of the things that I love about student ministry is I have the opportunity to serve with what I believe to be um, some of my best friends. Uh, Brandon Hudson and Andy Resch and Josh Lawrence and Aaron Boswell and all of our leaders, all the people that lead and serve in our ministry, they, they, they are close friends of mine. I love the privilege and honor it is to serve alongside of them and with them in reaching students for the gospel. And we, all, we all have friends of some sort, right? I mean, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to continue our study in the life of David. And we're going to look at what good friendship looks like. I mean, our lives are built around friendships. Facebook tells me I have 1,488 of them. Twitter, the Twitter for some of you older people, uh, tells me I have 565 of them. By the way, if any of you know who fake J.D. Greer is, I'd love to know. Really want some insight on that, all right? Uh, my birthday party last year, I invited 50 of you and 8 of you showed up. I know who you are too, all right? I got that little list, all right? I know how to keep track of you. Andy Stanley says this, he says, friendships determine the direction and quality of our lives. I think he's right. Tim Keller, Yoda, in Pastor J.D.'s eyes, he says this, we will never make it in life unless we choose, grow, and keep good friendships. You know, oftentimes our friends actually have greater influence over our lives than even our own convictions do. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know, when you feel like your gut's telling you something, whether it's good or bad, but, you, but your friends kind of step in, they're like, no, nah, man, you really, go this way, and you're like, ah, yeah, I'll do it. Peer, peer pressure at its finest, right? The problem really isn't the lack of people to whom we can befriend. I mean, think about this. Raleigh-Durham has over a million people in it alone. I mean, you experience this on, uh, on 40 or on 540 or 440, 
when you're driving home from work at 5 o'clock and you're like, what in the world? Am I living in hell on earth right now? Okay? This is miserable. What's going on? Our high school, middle schools, they're, they're literally, they're sitting in classrooms built for 35 and they're holding 60 in them. They're sitting hip to hip. All right, it's not the lack of people to whom we can befriend. It is the lack of true friendship that we have in our life. I think we would all agree. There's no way of denying this. We are overconnected, yet we are incredibly shallow, and we need good friends. You know, I'm not talking about, the, like, the coming and going type friend that you had, you know, go, growing up, you know, one you were forced to hang out with because he lived a couple doors down from you, so you built forts together, and you played tackle football in the backyard together, you did tea parties together, or whatever his girls do, you did those things. I'm not talking about that. I'm not even talking about the friend that you were... Like you thought you were going to be best friends for the rest of your life in middle school and high school, and they sign your yearbook with really dumb things, and you go back and look at it like I did this past week and see all the stupid stuff that they wrote in the back of yearbooks like this. Jason, so great to have you sit next to me in class. Can't believe you got caught by the teacher so many times cheating. You're so awesome. <laughs> Can't wait for next year. P.S. I'm the first to sign your crack. <laughs> Y'all remember that? That was awesome. Okay, crickets. That's good. Now, that's lame sauce, people, really. I mean, that's not the type of friendship I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about good friendship, right? I'm talking about the Lloyd and Harry type friend. Yeah, that's right. Everybody knows a Lloyd and Harry friend, right? The Lloyd and Harry friend, the friends that stick together through thick and thin, the friends that are there for each other no matter what comes their way. That is good friendship. Don't we all wish we had friends like that in our life? I mean, really, sure, we, some of y'all are laughing like, I don't want to loiter Harry in my life. We all wish we had good friends. I mean, it's the pursuit of your life to find acceptance, to find love, to find care, to find somebody that you can enjoy doing things with in life, to have fun with them. We are all looking for friendship of some sorts. You know, true friendship really is irreplaceable, is it not? We all need to hear this message today. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, and it doesn't matter the status of your friendships. You know, because I look around in the room and at our church, at all of our campuses, and I know there's people in different stages of life. Some of you, you're literally, you're on the brink of divorce because you have nobody to confide in. Others of you, you found yourself on the slippery slope towards depression because you've had nobody to talk to about issues that were going on in your life. For some of you, you've just decided to stay, uh, pretending like you're a 18-year-old male and living in your mom's basement until you're 40, fondling your computer screen and your video game controller for the rest of your life. You have no friends. Some of you, you you've really, you've, you've pulled yourself out of real community with real people, and you've, you've formed this whole new friendship in this online community because it's there that you actually have control over what people can and cannot know about you. Brad Paisley was right. It's so much cooler online, right? That's right. Y'all know country music. Don't pretend like you don't. Some of you, your, your best friend, your only friend, is, uh, is one that wears Gucci, and gets really expensive haircuts, and wears diamond studded necklaces and walks on four legs. It's true. But most of us, most of us, we have friends, but we've never allowed them the freedom to speak truth into our life. You get the point? We're all in great need. We all have a desire for friendship. So what we're going to do today is simple, all right? We're going to continue our study in the life of David. We're going to take an in-depth look of what friendship looks like. 
and the impact of what good friendship had on the life of David during hard and difficult times. We're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 18, all right? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to story, I'm going to walk you through what happens from 1 Samuel 18 all the way up until chapter 23. And when we get to chapter 23, we're going to make a couple of observations, and then we're actually going to go back to 18, all right? So you're going to be somewhere in those couple chapters along the way. I'm going to tell you what's going on, I'm going to do it at lightning speed, and, uh, and I hope that you guys are all ready for this. Before we get into that, let me ask you a question. How many of y'all are in small groups? Raise your hand. Raise them up high. You're in a small group. Okay. Great. For those of you that just raised your hand, you need to know that for the next 30 minutes, I'm getting ready to give you a free resource on what relationships should start to look like in your small group. Okay? You're welcome. All right. Y'all ready? Because I'm about to go yo soy el niño on y'all. All right? If you don't know what el niño means, it's the niño in Spanish. All right? Or talk to Rodel. He could hook you up. 1 Samuel chapter 16. All the people who like Saturday Night Live just laughed at that. Everybody else, watch it. Chris Farley, he's awesome. 1 Samuel chapter 16. David is anointed as, as king by Samuel. He's a shepherd boy that nobody really thought would be the next one in line. And Samuel anoints David as king. No one's really heard of this guy. He's been out tending sheep. He's the other brother that no one really had a whole lot of interest in. And then in chapter 17, David steps in as he's taking lunch out to the fellas, and he sees all the Israelites standing on the sidelines shaking in their boots. He's like, what's going on, guys? What's the deal? He looks out, and there's a Philistine, a guy by the name of Goliath, who's shouting slanders about the God over Israel. And David's like, what in the world is going on? Why are y'all on the sidelines acting like a bunch of sissies? I'm going in. And so what does he do? He goes in with a sling and a sword, doesn't need all that stuff, and he goes in and he slays the giant. Goliath falls. We saw that David was actually the the portrayal of Christ in that, and we're actually Israel on the sideline in need of a shepherd king, in need of a king that would come and serve, defeat the enemy on our behalf. Then in chapter 18, Saul's trying to figure out who in the world this guy is that, that slayed Goliath. And so someone comes out and he finds out that it's David, the son of Jesse of Bethlehem, a shepherd boy who Samuel had anointed as king, but nobody cared about. And then in chapter 18, verse 2, Saul has David brought to his palace and he's not allowed to leave because Saul realizes, Saul's the king, Saul realizes that David is now a threat to his throne, so he brings him in where Saul has control over him. And it's there in the palace where Jonathan, Saul's son, the prince, a.k.a. the king-in-waiting, and David's friendship really begins. They start to play tic-tac-toe together in the sand, you know, they're watching camel polo matches and playing cricket and building forts. They're doing all these great things together, and a friendship is forged. And in chapter 18, verse 3, it says this, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, that's important language that's being used here, this whole idea of covenant. You see, because in our society, we have a relational mindset to where we actually deal on contract basis. There's a difference between a contract and a covenant. A contract is limited. It has a timetable on it. A contract literally says that as long as you can provide for me, I'll provide for you. That's networking at its finest, right? I'll come into a relationship with you because you have something to offer me. But as soon as you start to diminish in the goods that you're providing for me, I start to look elsewhere. We see this in our society, even with athletes. Athletes, what do they do when they want to join a team and professionally? What do they do? They sign a contract. That contract has a timetable on it, and they're, getting, they're receiving something in turn for it. They're expected to produce at the highest level. And when their production starts to diminish, what happens to them? They get shucked out, traded, or put on the free agent market. 
You, we actually do this with our cable bills, don't we? Right? You guys sign a contract with your cable company, and you're paying them money, and you're expecting something in return. And then when they start to take away all the channels that you thought you were paying for, you start to get really angry, and you start to look elsewhere for it, like satellite companies. We have this whole idea of contract, but there is a completely different language being used here, and it is the language of covenant. Covenant says this. It says, my needs come second. The relationship with you comes first. My needs are secondary. My relationship with you comes first. You first. A great example of this is marriage. A good one. Okay, a good marriage. A, a, a good marriage says that for me as a husband that my wife's needs come way before mine. Literally that the me monster, all the desires that I have, me, 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 they all start to die and suppress and put my wife's needs first. That's, that's a great example of what covenant is. You see, this language of covenant, this covenant is going to come back a little bit later and play a big role in the big picture of this story. We're going to keep going. And in chapter 18, David is successful in everything that he does. And anything Saul asked David to do, he does it, and he does it really well. You guys know people like that, right? They drive you nuts. When you're like, you know, people that in your class, when you're in high school, or people that you work with, and they're asked to do a task, they don't just do the task, they go above and beyond it. We call them brown nosers, right? David is that guy here. He does it, and he does it well. The men return from war in chapter 18, and they're all shouting, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And Saul's like, oh, no, 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 he didn't. How, why is David getting all the credit? Saul gets ticked off. He's not a happy camper. So what does he do? He slings a spear at heart boy, David, trying to kill him, and David eludes him. David won, Saul zero. David eludes Saul. This really starts to tick Saul off. And this now becomes Saul's burning passion to get David dead. It's his mission. It's what he wants to do. He wants him gone. In chapter 19, Jonathan, remember Jonathan, David's friend, Saul's son, goes on behalf and pleads for David's life, asking Saul to spare him. He convinces his father not to do it, and it, and, and it works. But then war breaks out again. And David is once again victorious, and Saul once again becomes angry. In chapter 19, Saul plots to kill David again. But David's wife finds out about the plot, and she tells David to flee in the middle of the night. Saul's men come in, getting ready to think they're getting ready to kill David. And what do they find? They find a bunch of pillowcases stuffed with Charmin Ultra. Run and tweet that, homeboy. Suckers. David 2, Saul 0. That's the constant story of David's life in these next few chapters. Chapter 20 takes us even more madness. David is supposed to dine with King Saul. He wants Jonathan to tell Saul he has to go back to Bethlehem because they're going to offer up a sacrifice on behalf of the entire clan. And here's what's going to happen. If Saul gets mad, okay, Jonathan, if Saul, your father, gets mad that I'm not there, that means he wants me dead. But if he's like, oh, no problem, let him go to Bethlehem, that means I'm going to live. So they devise this really stupid plan where royalty boy, Jonathan, turns Hebrew hillbilly. And he, gets his, he gets his bow and arrow out, and he tells David to go hide in the fields while he's talking with, with Saul. And he says, all right, I'm going to do target practice, and Jeffrey, my butler here, I'm going to have him go retrieve them. Okay, that's Fresh Prince of Bel-Air for those of y'all who don't know that. All right, he shoots, the bow, he shoots the arrows out in the field, and he says, if I tell Jeffrey that they're to the left or to the right of the stone while you're hiding out in the fields, that means you're safe. You can come back. But if I tell Jeffrey to go way out yonder, way on beyond it, guess what? You're in trouble. 
So the whole thing goes down. He shoots the arrows past the stone. David's in serious trouble. David flees again. David three, Saul zero. He's running up the score, people. Saul is getting angry by this point. He wants to get his hands on David, but he just cannot do it. Chapter 21 gets even crazier. David shows up in this place. He's greeted by a priest. The priest gives him provisions. David is a man on the run, okay? He's an outlaw at this time in Saul's eyes. The priest gives him provisions, and uh, he, he sees this guy named Doeg, the bounty hunter in, in, in prison. He's one of Saul's guys, and uh, he gets some provisions from the priest. Saul hears that this priest is giving him provisions. David flees. Saul goes in to get him. David's gone. The priest dies. David, four, Saul, zero. All right? He's continually to run up the score. Then chapter 22, David goes to war. He wins. Before he, victorious, guess what he has to do again? Flee. He has to run again. You guys get the point here? David is constantly a man on the run. He's constantly fearing his life. And in chapter 23 is where we find ourselves, and David is hiding out once again in a city called Horish. But you need to know something. That in this story, there's actually two storylines running parallel with one another. The first story is the story of flight and fear. David is a man on the run. He's constantly fleeing, and he's fearful for his life. But running parallel to this story is a story of friendship. And Jonathan displays it beautifully. You see, Jonathan, at this point, is sitting back, checking the Drudge Report, watching Modern Family, hanging out. And he hears what's going on. He hears that David is in the city of Horish, his friend. He hears what's going on. And he takes action. Look at this, verse 16, chapter 23. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and he went to David at Horish and he strengthened his hand in God. How did Jonathan display true friendship? He displayed true friendship by being intentional. How do you, how do you know when a, when a friendship has gone past surface level? It's when you begin to be intentional towards your relationship with the other person, right? You know what I'm talking about when you, if you're married, you've been in this dating relationship before, if you're in this dating relationship now, you're trying to figure this out. You know, you really, that relationship never really takes off until you start to be intentional towards the other person, right? Now, that's exactly what's going on here. Intentionality, guys, is a true sign of friendship. At this point, David is alone and he's afraid. He's far from home. He's in great need. So what does Jonathan do? He acts. He gets up and he goes. Listen, Jonathan had everything to lose and nothing to gain by going to David. How do I know that? Because by this time, in chapter 23, Saul is in a stinking rampage. He's throwing a hissy fit because he can't get his hands on David. And Jonathan literally is risking his father's wrath against him. Look at this, 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. You get that idea of anger being kindled? It's like it's been wound up, it's been bound up, and all of a sudden it's just boom. This wrath is getting ready to come upon him. And he says, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Crickets, crickets. You ought to know that kind of language was in the Bible, did you? Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse, David, to your own shame? He's, he's saying to his son, as a father and as a king, do I not know that you have betrayed me and devised a friendship in, in Saul's eyes with the enemy? He's risking the wrath of his father and the wrath of a king. 
Saul was angry at him for siding with David. And then, look, he's risking his position. Look at the very next verse. He says, for as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. For as long as David is alive, Jonathan, you will never sit on the throne. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain. You know, all those parties that he grew up going to, teaching him how to eat properly with a fork and stand up straight and dance. Oh, that's cotillion, same thing, right? How to use proper language, all, everything he had been working for. He put it all on the line. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain, but he still acted. You see, nobody likes a passive friend, do you? You know, a, a passive friend is like the one who knows something is going on behind your back, and they hear about it, and they're supposedly your best friend, but then they never step in on your behalf to inform you that something is going on. That's a passive friend. You know, a passive friend is the one that never calls you. You're always calling them. You know what I'm talking about? You leave them 47 messages in the course of three weeks and you never hear from them again. You're like, did they die? It's a passive friend. You know, what do you do when you're in a relationship with a guy or a girl? You're in the dating relationship and you you find out that the guy that you're dating is passive. What do you do? You kick him to the street because he's a bum. Ladies, if you're in a dating relationship with a guy who's passive, get rid of him. He's a bum, okay? Get him out of there. Wives, if your husband is passive, slap him in the back of the head and say, get in the game. All right? You have my permission. You can do that. This is everything except Jonathan. Jonathan is not passive in the slightest bit. He is not passive at all in his relationship towards David. When Jonathan arrives and goes to David, it is literally going to cost him something. In fact, many historians will tell you that this trek that Jonathan goes on to Horish is actually around 30 miles. There's some serious intentionality goes on here. Listen, these guys had an intimate friendship. The fact of the matter is simple. We cannot have intimate friendships with 5,000 people. We need people in our life that can speak truth into our lives that know us and know us well. If you've, you've been here at the summit for more than three weeks, you've probably heard us say discipleship happens in relationships. For us, it happens in small groups. We want you to grow as a disciple. We want you to be connected to relationships. We want you to have people who can begin to speak intentionally into your life. We want you to have a Jonathan. I know that there's objections out there. Some of you guys are like, I already have a group of friends. I don't have time for another. Fair enough. But maybe you and your group of friends need to learn to be intentional towards one another. Instead of constantly talking about the weather how bad your football team is doing and how the stocks are doing. It's a weird friendship anyway. Maybe, maybe, your group, maybe your group of friends needs to become a small group. That's okay. Maybe, maybe your group, maybe the cluster of people that you spend time with, maybe you guys need to become a small group. We'd love to help you make that happen. Some of you are like, I've tried to be intentional, I've tried to find a small group, but I just can't find one, wah, 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 wah. Maybe you need to lead one. Maybe you need to take the step of intentionality and begin to lead one so you can have people that can speak directly into your life. Like, talk to your campus pastor about that. They want to help you do that. We have a brand new small group leader training on January the 8th. We want to help you find a Jonathan. We want to help you find relationships where people can speak directly into your life. 
Listen, Jonathan acted intentionally, but he did not act just to act. You can intend, you can intend to do a lot of things, right, in your life. I mean, some of you have withdrawn from relationships because someone has actually intended to do harm towards you. And so what have you done? You've, you've pulled back. Intention is pointless if it doesn't have purpose. Listen, Jonathan acts, but he acts to strengthen David's hand in God. Jonathan rose and went to David at Horish. Why? To strengthen his hand in God. Men, do you know that your wife, she cannot meet all of your relational needs? You need men in your life that can speak truth to you. Women, the same is true for you. You need ladies in your life that know you and that can speak truth into you. Proverbs 27, 17 says, we quote this all the time, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We need people that can speak truth into our lives and strengthen our understanding of God. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Wasn't David considered a man after God's own heart? Doesn't the, doesn't the scripture call him a man of great faith? Why in the world would he need somebody to speak truth into his life, to remind him about God's promises. We do the same thing. We say the same thing about ourselves, guys. I do. I'm doing great. My walk with the Lord is strong. Things are going awesome. Guess what? For now. You see, David was a man after God's own heart, but he would have his highs and lows just like all of us. And at this time in his life, David is tempted with bitterment, disillusionment, anger, fear, you name it. He's seeing God do great things on his behalf and then he, people want him dead. He's dealing with all of him. And the moment that Jonathan gets to David, he strengthens his hand in God. He does not minimize the problem. The problem is real. The threat is real against you. But he reminded David of God's promises. In verse 17 of that chapter, he says, Saul will not harm you and you will be king. David, do you remember when Samuel anointed you? God is faithful. David, do you remember when you stood on behalf of Israel and slayed the giant? God is faithful. Trust in God's promises to you, David. Listen, guys, we have to be very careful about presenting ourselves as the answers to people's problems instead of pointing people to God. We have to be very careful about presenting ourselves as the answer instead of pointing people to the greatness and the rich riches of God. But how do I know that David was strengthened? You know, one of the beautiful things about First and Second Samuel is throughout this whole story, David pens a lot of great psalms. And Psalm 35 and 36 are two of those. And he says this, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take up shield and armor and rise for my help, Lord. Draw the spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. That doesn't sound like a man who's fearful anymore, right? But Psalm 36, verse 5 through 7. Your steadfast love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast, you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. That was a man who was strengthened and reminded of the promises of God. You know, hopefully you guys have stories in your life where you were down and people spoke truth into your life and reminded you of God's riches. Maybe you've been through some serious hurt and pain. Two years ago, my wife and I went through one of the hardest periods of my life. 
her father, my father-in-law, was killed in a motorcycle accident. And it's one thing to lose a parent. But it's another thing when you lose a parent overseas. He was in Singapore. And so this just throws in a whole new twist to the ballgame. You've got you to try to figure out how you're going to get him home. And someone has to go over there and clean out his apartment and do it all. Guess who that got dropped on? Me. I was hurting. I was in great need. I was angry. I was trying to figure out what in the world was going on, but I had somebody who stepped in. See, I had a lot of friends, a lot of really good friends speak truth in my life during that time. But one in particular prayed over me. He spent time with me. He knew that I was going to have to make a long journey on an airplane to a foreign country and clean out all the things that remained of my father-in-law's life. So you know what he did? He got on an airplane. He sat next to me the whole way, and he went. Why? Because he wanted to remind me that God was still faithful. He didn't want me to walk into an apartment room all by myself and see disaster. He strengthened my understanding of the glorious riches of Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Are you stronger? Are your friends stronger or weaker in their relationship and understanding of God due to their time spent with you? Are your friends, the people that you call intimate friends, are they stronger or are they weaker in their understanding and their relationship with King Jesus because of their time spent with you? Let's flip that. Are you stronger in these things due to your time spent with them? Let's be honest, we have some really idiotic people that we call friends, right? And for some reason, we care more about what they call us to and not what the gospel calls us to. And that's that whole idea that we allow them to carry our convictions for us. You know, for some of you, that may mean that you have someone speaking into your life right now. It's a believer. They're saying, you're not happy, just get a divorce. Just give up, walk away. If you really want to be a good father and husband, you've got to work 90 hours a week and never spend a moment at home because you're the provider. They're the ones that tell you college students at the end of the semester, relax. I know you've got exams. Most of them are online. Just take the shortcut and cheat. No one's watching, right? Those are the idiots I'm talking about. Listen, this is something that we all have to deal with. And when we deal with this, it will ultimately radically change the way that we view friendship. How in the world does a relationship between two people get to this point? How can two men be so committed to one another in friendship that one literally goes on a three-day journey to see the other just to encourage him in God's promises? I think it all goes back to chapter 18, verse 2, in the covenant language. You see, real friendship is built upon sacrifice. Real friendship is built on sacrifice. You remember Jonathan's covenant with David in chapter 18? Guess what? That covenant was very costly to him. It cost him everything by human standards. See, sacrifice is giving up something and committing to something greater. Yeah, marriage, you give up your personal rights and commit your rights to your spouse. In the workplace, maybe, maybe you have this great idea, but you give up your idea for personal gain so the company can be better. Church, maybe you give up the idea of blessing ourselves so much this Christmas with more stuff and give to something greater like the Christmas missions offering to see the gospel go among the nations. Well, there's a great story of a high school student just recently who got sick and tired of seeing tens of thousands of dollars at his high school go to building homecoming floats. 
for it to exist for a, a few hours and then end up in the trash somewhere. So he devised a plan. He asked all of his high school friends to join him, and they did it. So you know what? This year we're not going to have any floats. We're not going to have any of that big stuff. We're going to take all the money, the thousands of dollars that we have, and we're going to actually give it to an organization. They're going to ship that money overseas to a country in Africa to help bring clean, running water to a village, giving up something and committing it to something greater. By the way, don't tell me high school students can't change the world. God has given them a vision. They can do it. Remember something about Jonathan, guys. He is the king in waiting. What does he do? He takes off his robe and he places it at David's feet and he says, my inheritance. My place on the throne, David. What's rightfully mine, David. What I've been trained for, what I've been longing for my whole life, I lay it down at your feet and I commit myself to you. Why? Because God has anointed you as the true king over Israel. This is, this is pretty ridiculous stuff going on here. This is the king handing, the king in waiting, handing the keys to the kingdom over to Music Boy. All right, that's like the heir apparent of Buckingham Palace tossing the, key, the keys to the kingdom there to Justin Bieber. Right, Jonathan sacrificed it all. He gave it up and committed his life to David. And you know what? His commitment was carried all the way through even when things got nasty. Even when adversity struck, when death seemed certain, when the odds were stacked against him, he stayed. He stayed. There, James McDonald, pastor, says this. He says, commitment is friendship forged in the furnace of adversity. Commitment is friendship forged in the furnace of adversity. He says, you know, a true friend, you don't have to go knocking on their door when adversity strikes. They're already knocking on yours. They're already there waiting. You guys, you can't help but see something beautiful happening here. Because in all the previous stories, previous sermons that we've been studying in the life of David, David has been the key Christ figure. But this time, the tables have turned. Jonathan is it. You, you can't help but see this, that Jesus is the ultimate example of friendship. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Philippians chapter 2, 3 through 8 says this. We read this earlier in worship. I love how this ties in. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's what friendship looks like. It's what community looks like. It's what relationships look like. How do we know? Because your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus left the throne, the riches of heaven, and he took off his robe and he placed it on us that we might become the righteousness of God. Do not miss this. Friendship is at the heart of the gospel. Friendship is at the heart of the word. Friendship is at the heart of salvation. When Jesus was talking to his disciples about what friendship was, he said this to them, as I have loved you, so now love one another. 
Guys, see, the real ability to be a good friend comes from knowing God's friendship toward us in Christ Jesus. He is the king. He is the friend that we're all searching for. He's intentional towards you. Ephesians chapter 1 reminds us that he chose us. He pursued you so that we might be reconciled to God. You know what? So much so that it cost him that he would sacrifice himself on a cross. What a friend we have in Christ. What a friend, as the old said, what a friend we have in Jesus that God would send his son here on earth, that he would leave the riches of heaven and come to reconcile you and me back into right relationship with himself. Guys, listen. We were created to be in perfect relationship with God. But we rebelled. Genesis 1 reminds us that we were created for God and God alone. And when sin entered the world, we started to turn away from God and search our own pleasure, search for things that we thought would fill that void that we lost in the garden. Now that desire to be loved, that desire to have someone care for you, that desire to have someone be intentional towards you, that's a good desire, but you're never going to find it until you find it in Jesus. You can search and search and search and search and search, but people will constantly let you down. You know, one of the beautiful things about friendship is it's supposed to point us towards the beauty of God's friendship towards us. He was intentional toward us. In Christ, we never have to search for approval from people. You no longer have to leverage them for your needs to be satisfied. Jesus alone satisfies. And when you experience and put your faith in Christ, you begin to really know what it means to be loved and really know what it means to love one another. Jesus is the friend that you've been searching for. He's the one that displays all of these attributes towards you. You will. Pray with me. I wonder if you're here today and you realize that you've been pursuing things from people that keep letting you down over and over and over again. You've heard Jesus alone satisfies. He alone is the ultimate friend. The scripture tells us that because of sin, we're, we're, little, we're, we're enemies of God. That through Jesus Christ, God reconciles us to himself. You want to know Jesus. You want to experience salvation. You want to put your faith and trust in him. Scripture tells us it's simple. It's not a magic prayer that prays you. It's the condition and status of your heart. Admit, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior. Jesus, you are Lord. I believe that God has raised you from the dead. In you alone I find salvation. Save me. Maybe you're here today and you just don't have a Jonathan in your life and you need to ask the Lord to Begin to spur you on to find one. Be intentional. Find a small group. Maybe you're here today and you just need to remember the cross. 
where Jesus shows his ultimate friendship where it cost him everything. Remember what he's done. Father God, we love you. We thank you for displaying the ultimate friendship through Jesus. God, I pray that your word is really penetrating the hearts of your people here at the summit at all of our campuses today. God, may we know you, and out of knowing you, God, may we love one another. Give us, Lord, give us good friends to help us to understand the beauty of your riches. We love you for your kingdom, for your glory. We pray and believe all these things. Amen.